we live in an age of fulfillment. He again, for the second time in the second sermon, blames his audience for the crucifixion of Christ. He makes a call to repentance. This time, 5,000 people are saved. And Peter and John are arrested. They're hailed before Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, where Peter preaches his third sermon in Acts. He preaches that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Indeed, he's the stone that was rejected by the builders who has become the cornerstone. He preaches the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he makes again a call to repentance. This time, there aren't a bunch of people saved. Instead, these men who were hard of heart tried to ban these men of God from preaching. And Peter and John respond by saying, whether it is right In the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're released. You read that they go back to their friends, where they pray for boldness. Boldness for what? To keep preaching the gospel. And you read that when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They hold everything in common. And at this point, we're introduced to Barnabas. And you read that everyone is selling their property and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And there's a Levite named Barnabas who sells a field. And he takes the money from the field and lays it at the apostles' feet. And then in chapter 5, you're introduced to the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira who lie about how much they sold their property for, and they bring a false sacrifice to the apostles' feet. Ananias comes first. He lies about how much he sold the property for. Three hours later, Sapphira sashays in and tells the same lie. And Peter declares that the feet that carried your husband out are standing at the door, and they're going to carry you out as well. And that leads to great fear, as you can imagine, Coming on all the church, yet the apostles go out daily and they're healing the sick. They're performing signs and wonders and they're arrested again. And whereas the apostles and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're filling Jerusalem with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the high priest is filled with jealousy. And you read Peter's fourth sermon in Acts where he preaches again that Jesus is the Savior. He preaches the bodily resurrection of Christ. He blames his audience again for killing Christ, and he makes another call to repentance. And this time, they're beaten, they're released, and they keep preaching the gospel. And then you get to chapter 6, where we find a dispute about, of all things, feeding widows who are culturally Greek. And... The apostles tell the church that they are to appoint seven men full of spirit and wisdom to take care of this issue. And among these men, the church appoints is this proto deacon and a man who turns out to be a great preacher named Stephen, a man full of grace and power. We read Stephen himself is arrested for preaching the very things that Jesus preached. And upon his arrest, he delivers the greatest sermon in Acts, a sermon in four parts, a sermon about Abraham, about Joseph, about Moses in the temple. But more than that, how Jesus fulfilled 
the covenant with Abraham, how Jesus is the greater Joseph, how Jesus is the greater Moses and how Jesus is the temple. They're all types and shadows that point to Christ. And he concludes his sermon with this peroration. He says, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised and hard and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, he said. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And that's where we are. And now we're going to read their response. So if you'll stand with me in the honor of reading God's word and as a public testimony to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we shall begin in Acts chapter seven, verse 54 and go through Acts chapter eight, verse three. Now, when they that is the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. With regard to our text, we'll discuss three things. One, the typological significance of Stephen. Two, the eschatological significance of this moment. And three, the salvific significance of this scene. The typological significance of Stephen. Stephen comes to us initially as what? As a humble servant, a man the congregation said could take part in the feeding of widows. Indeed, that is the calling for all of us. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Two, we read that Stephen is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Just before the temptation, we read in Luke chapter four that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit himself when he returned from Jerusalem, from the Jordan and was led by the spirit 
in the wilderness for 40 days. So both Stephen and Christ humble. They are presented to us as humble servants. They're both full of the spirit. We read that Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's the first non-apostle to perform miracles in Acts. And this is how Peter actually described Jesus's life. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs that God did through him in your midst. For Stephen, like Christ, preached with authority. For we read that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking in chapter six. When Jesus was teaching and he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar and he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. We read that the response was this. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. And when Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees about the resurrection and presented with a reductio ad absurdum argument about a woman who through tragic circumstances would have been married seven times and said, who is she married to in the resurrection? And Jesus teaches that in the resurrection, we are like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. We read they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And here I think it's worth pointing out. That when we talk about the typological significance of Stephen, I want you to think as we go forward to the next six of these. That Stephen is not a type of Christ. The types precede Christ. Stephen here is a type of the church. For the book of Acts is the body of Christ doing the work of Christ through the spirit of Christ. And just as Stephen is doing the works of Christ, we should look at his life And try to embody that as well. And if you live out the life of Christ, you will have the same accusations against you that Christ had against him. And that's what we see with Stephen. When Stephen is about to be arrested, they say this man never ceases to speak against this holy place that is the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That same accusation, almost verbatim, is leveled against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not in Luke. It appears in Matthew. It appears in Mark. Luke obviously has access to Mark because he quotes it so much, and Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. But Luke intentionally leaves that stage out of Christ's passion, out of Christ's illegal trial. And he places it here solely with Stephen. Why? So that we may know that we are the body of Christ on earth. We are not simply followers of Christ. We are his body. We are his temple, both individually and corporately. That accusation, of course, leads to the same sentence. Drug outside of the city and killed. But even in their death, the kingdom would grow like the mustard seed. Six, we see that they're both transfigured in a way. We had read a couple of months ago when I was preaching that Stephen's face in this moment was like the face of an angel. 
And it calls to mind Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he's talking to Moses and Elijah. He is speaking with the law and the prophets. And in Luke's gospel, we read that he's telling them about his departure or his exodus that he must have from Jerusalem. And in this moment, with Stephen's face transfigured, there is about to be an exodus from Jerusalem by the church. We see just like with Christ's death, there are supernatural phenomena associated with Stephen's death. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And of course, at Christ's crucifixion, there's earthquakes and there's darkness. And we read that the light failed. But here it's not darkness. The glory of God is not associated with darkness. The glory of God is associated with light. Why at Christ's crucifixion is it dark, but at Stephen's murder, it's light because Christ now reigns. He is at the right hand of the father. And no matter the tragedy that befalls us, we know that we serve a savior who is on his throne and he is at the right hand of God and his purposes will stand. I hope you believe that this morning. Stephen's words, we read that Stephen speaks as they were stoning him, as his flesh is being ripped apart by rock after rock, as his bones break, as the whir of the stones come in his head. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When Jesus is on the cross, his final words in Luke's gospel are fathers, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus commits his spirit to the father. Stephen commits his spirit to Christ. Why? Because Jesus said that he is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me, he said. This is beautiful. Number nine, Stephen falls to his knees. And Luke's corpus up to this point, there's only one man who had prayed on his knees. It's Jesus Christ. After telling his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation, we read that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And at the conclusion of the third movement in Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 20, a third man will kneel to pray. A man who is now called Saul. His final prayer is, Lord, and he says it loud, do not hold this sin against them. Living out our calling in the Lord's prayer to forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. He's living out the passion of our Savior, for we read that when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two, the eschatological significance of this scene in this moment. The Sanhedrin, that is all of Israel, the 70 elders plus the high priest, 71 men in all, acting on behalf of the nation. 
sit in judgment on Stephen as they had set in judgment on Christ and they sit in judgment on Christ's church. And like the disciples before the ascension, these men would have been looking for a physical kingdom to be restored to a physical Israel. But the kingdom of God does not come with eating and drinking, nor can you say, look, there it is, or look, I see it over there. No, the kingdom of God is within you. Upon hearing the sermon of Stephen, they're angry, they're furious, they're white hot, they're gnashing and grinding their teeth. This word for grinding or gnashing here, it calls back to the Greek word used in the Septuagint in the Psalms. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. But in this hellish scene, the kingdom of God, the sovereign dynamic reign of Christ is not confined to a small plot of land in the Middle East. Even the psalmist declares, clap your hands, all people shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord. The most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth. God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God and he is highly exalted. The Apostle Paul would tell the church at Rome that God's land promised to Abraham was not just to Canaan land but that his offspring would be heir to the whole what? The whole world. And he would write to the Ephesians that when Christ was raised from the dead, God seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put... All things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all of oh, this worldwide kingdom. Indeed, Simeon prophesied, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. In fact, this is one of the points of Jesus' very first sermons, his, his first sermon in Luke, in Luke chapter 4. He says, truly, I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, the prophet, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and there was famine in all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there are many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, the prophet. But he cleansed none of them, but only Naaman, the Syrian. They knew what he was saying, his audience did. They were saying that at the same time in this moment, there was a judgment happening on that generation. But that judgment would lead to a kingdom that encompassed not Jew only, but the whole world. This is seen, too, with the sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when all the languages of the world are speaking the mighty works of God. 
not just Hebrew, but all the languages of the world. Paul would identify that sort of thing as judgment in 1 Corinthians when he would say tongues is a sign of judgment, that it is uh, by, by a stammering lips and an unknown tongue I will judge this people. When the disciples pray for boldness after the first arrest of Peter and John, they explicitly link the leadership in Israel with Rome when they quote Psalm chapter 2 and say, why do the Gentiles rage? And of course, Paul conclude, Acts concludes with Paul in Rome. And he's met with local synagogue leaders a couple of times in Rome while Paul is under house arrest. They've heard the gospel. And while some are convinced, we read others disbelieved. This leads Paul to say that this fulfills the prophet Isaiah. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So as you read the book of Acts, it can become a little bittersweet. This rapid expansion of the gospel throughout the world happens even as Israel largely rejects their king. But we can rejoice with the Apostle Paul in this mystery, that though a partial hardening has come upon Israel as regarding election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so here in this scene, at the conclusion of the first movement in Acts, Israel's heart is hardened as they persecute the church, as the high priest condemns Stephen to death, just like Christ. And what's the result? God's plan is not thwarted. His purpose stands. This leads to the fulfillment of Christ's proclamation. The disciples will be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the world. Three, the salvific significance of this scene. We see, of course, the grace bestowed on Stephen, that he's a man of God, that he's full of the spirit, that he's full of grace and power, that he's finishing well. But this is no regular murder. This is a fratricide. For both of these men in view, both Saul and Stephen, have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world that they would be holy and blameless before him. Both of these men are chosen. Both of these men are part of the elect. Both of these men are child of God. The only difference is one knows it and the other doesn't. Saul's heart is still stone. He does not yet have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's receiving here an unholy offering. Do you see that? Whereas the apostles we read earlier, people, the disciples would sell their possessions and bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet. And right after that, you're introduced to Barnabas, where we read, there was a Levite named Barnabas, and he sold a field, and he brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet. These are holy sacrifices. You're giving all you have to Christ. He demands all that we have. And Saul here is receiving an unholy sacrifice. For these witnesses 
are laying their garments at his feet. This erudite yet rapacious Pharisee is presiding over the death and indeed the murder of one he would later come to know as his brother in Christ. We know, though, that this young man, this young man who is exhibiting these gross acts of wickedness, that this man would be saved and in fact was saved before the foundation of the world, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to God's own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That though in this moment Saul was by nature a child of wrath, dead in his sin, God being rich in mercy would vivify him, would make him alive together with Christ. This bellicose accuser would soon be changed into the man who would ask, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. He was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Nothing in all creation, he tells us, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet here he stands presiding over the murder of Stephen. And here we must note at a time like this that we serve a God who is in the business of saving sinners. He was in that business in 33 AD when Saul is overseeing the murder of the church and arresting men and women daily. And he's in that business today. And we can rejoice in that. Whether that sinner is a liar or an adulterer, a hater of God, or even a murderer, our Lord died for all those who would repent and believe in him. Now, for those of us who know the Lord, this is a call to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're called to continue to do that. But dear friend, if you don't know the Lord, this is a wake up call because Saul believed he was following Yahweh. He was zealous for his interpretation of the scriptures. He believed that what he was doing was ushering in the kingdom of God. And he believed that Israel would be saved through the persecution of her king, Jesus Christ. And so if you are not a child of God today. You need to look at the light that is within you and make sure it is not darkness. You need to come to him in repentance and confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Stephen, this comet that comes through the book of Acts. Thank you for the display of your grace. Thank you for giving us the story of a man who finished so well and this hope we find knowing that even a murderer like Saul would be saved by the grace of Christ. Be with us this morning. Help our church, those in our church who are ill. Lord, when Jesus came, we know that you announced the kingdom by healing the sick.
And we ask for that this morning. That those under the sound of my voice who are ill would be healed to the glory of Christ. That all the trials and tribulations any person the sound of my voice is going through would be endured to the glory of Jesus Christ and for the edification of the body. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.